Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to uh, continue in our study. We've been looking at saving faith, and today I want to look at the nature of saving faith, uh, what, what exactly uh, that means. And in Romans chapter uh, 4, verses 16 to basically the end of the chapter, we may not get through the whole thing today, but uh, I want to read the text for us. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith, but considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. As we look at this text this morning... It tells a story. It tells a story of a man of faith, a man who had saving faith, because there's different kinds of faith. The Bible speaks of saving faith, a faith that's able to save. It also speaks of what? Dead faith, faith that's dead. And so we have to be reminded that just because you say you have faith, it's not, it doesn't mean that's it. You can have faith in a coconut. That's not going to get you salvation. Okay, you could have faith in another person. That's not going to get you salvation. And so we want to look at the nature of saving faith. Uh, what are the, the consequences? And Paul has spelled out many here. And I want to ask this question as we kind of do a little bit of review and just a little bit of introduction here. What are the consequences if someone tries to achieve their salvation with God, not by faith, but by works, by morality, or as, the, as Paul says, the law. The, the Jews of Jesus' day thought that somehow by keeping the law, they would be saved. And in the NIV and even in the ESV, the text we're using this morning, you'll notice that the verses we're studying are divided into two paragraphs, and that's the proper division. The first paragraph basically deals with a lot that's going on there in negative, verses 14 and so forth. It, it looks at it from a negative side. It deals with the bad consequences of someone who's trying to be saved by keeping the law. And he says there's basically three consequences here. Look at verse 14, just in way of review. We did this, spoke about this, not in this fashion, but last week we went over these verses. In verse 14 it says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. The first consequence of trying to be saved by works or the law is that faith has no value. Any kind of faith has no value if that's what you believe. The reason faith has no value if one is living by the principle of the law is that the faith and law are opposites. If a person is choosing one, then he's rejecting the other. 
It is impossible, beloved, to be saved by both faith and works. It's impossible. It's as impossible as setting out from Colorado for the East Coast and the West Coast at the same time. Can't do it. You're going to have to make a choice. The late Dr. Gray Barnhouse produced a film. It was called The Geography of Salvation. And it was a gospel film, and it was based on this. It was based on the fact that the continental United States, both in the, in the continental United States, both the highest point, which is what? Anybody know? Mount Whitney. And the lowest point, Death Valley, they're both in California. And what he did is he compared the state of California to our lost state as sinners. And he showed that it is impossible to get, get out of California by simply going up. A person who starts in Death Valley and travels up to sea level and then goes on up into the mountains may feel, he makes a point of saying, that he has made notable progress in his travels. And he has in terms of elevation. But he's still where? In California. And he relates that to our salvation. He says what we need is not a higher moral elevation, but a change of state. We need to be moved out of our lost state in which we are under the wrath of God into what he called a saved state. And that's different from going up and by a different means entirely. Uh, To put it another way, think of it this way. Law is man-directed. When you think of the law, it points to the abilities of man to keep the law, while faith is God-directed. It points to God and his power to save us. So the idea that somehow we're going to save ourselves by keeping the law or by works, the first point simply is that faith, it makes faith no value. Secondly, in verse 14 there, we read about a promise. And that's the second point. He says the promise is worthless. The promise is worthless if we can be saved by works. Because the second consequence of living by the law principle is really to make null and void the promise of God. Because if you think about it, the promise of salvation is linked to the law. If the, if the promise of salvation is linked to the keeping the law, this only means that it is necessary for a person to keep the law in order to receive the promise. I mean, God could have made it that way. He could have made the plan that way. But it would have meant that his promise was what? Conditional. It would have been if God said, I promise to save you if you do this or if you do that. If that were the case, the promise would never have been fulfilled because as Paul has already proved in the earlier chapters of Romans, there is nobody, (laughs) nobody, who can or ever will do what God's law requires in its entirety. Not only that, but there's nobody who has ever done what the law requires in any degree, really. Because whenever we say, oh, this is my standard, someone says, oh, I, I believe I should be this good. Well, somebody else says, no, you need to be this good. No, somebody else says, you need, there's, no, there's no standard. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He says, law means failure. Therefore, if the promise had been made through the medium of the law, what God was giving, as it were, with his right hand, he would have been taking back with his left hand. There would have been no promise at all. It would have made the promise of no value whatsoever. Well, the third thing is, if you're going to try to get saved by works or by morality or by the law, basically, verse 15 tells us what the law brings. It says it brings wrath, for the law brings wrath. That's pretty quick. That's pretty to the point. It doesn't beat around the bush. That's the third consequence of trying to achieve salvation through works. 
through thinking somehow if you get all your ducks in a row, somehow God's going to look kindly on you and and overlook the bad parts and, and only count the good parts. And this goes far beyond what was already established in the first and second consequence. Those consequences tell us that when what a person is trying to be saved by the law, he fails to achieve. He fails to achieve the promise. This point tells us he actually does achieve it. (laughs) He achieves exactly what is promised, wrath. Because the law can do nothing but condemn us. That's That's the very essence of what the law is. The law says, do this, do that. If you don't do this or that, you're going to pay the consequences. The law possesses nothing, beloved, that enables a person to meet the demands of the law. Now, you might say, well, then why is the law there? Is the law evil? Is the law not the word of God? No, it is. Because he asked that question, when we get to Romans 7, you you can look ahead and you can see that. And he answers the question, certainly not. The law is holy. The law is the commandment of God. It's righteous. It's good. You know, when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror and you don't like what you see, going into the kitchen and getting a bottle of Windex and going back and cleaning that mirror is <laughs> not going to make a whole lot of difference, right? It's not going to change the appearance of you at all. That's not its job. The job is to show, give you a reflection of what you really look like. That's what the law is. The law is not bad. It's not defective in and of itself because it can't save you. That's not its function. It never was. I remember as an early Christian, I used to think people in the Old Testament got saved by keeping the law. And now today in the church age, we get saved by by the grace of God by faith. That's not true. And that's what Paul is pointing out. They're always saved by faith through the grace of God. The law was given to us so that we understand that we cannot achieve heaven by keeping it. The Bible says if you just mess up in one little area, you've blown the whole thing. If you don't turn from the law as a way of salvation, and trust affirmatively in the work of God in Christ Jesus, the very standard that God lays down, you will never be saved. What Paul does, he adds here in verse 15, where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, If there were no traffic signs, there could be no ticket for breaking those laws. If the laws didn't exist, there could be no transgression of the law. But he says, without the law, we don't know that we are transgressors. That's why in the New Testament, whenever you see Jesus confronting somebody concerning salvation, if that person is a prideful person, what does he do? He He throws the law at them. He throws the law at them because they're prideful. They think somehow that they're good. And he says, I've got to show you that you're not good. And so he uses the law of God to do that. And yet when he comes across a poor woman who's broken in her sin and over her sin and, and so undone, she can't even look up from the, the dirt in which she, she lies, then Jesus doesn't throw the law at that person. What does he do? He gives her grace because she's already broken. The law was given to us so that we can see that we're not going to get to heaven by keeping it. The only way to get to heaven is to turn to Christ and to be saved through Him. Matter of fact, Paul even says in Romans 7, 7, I would have known what sin was except through the law of God. That's the purpose of the law. So there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is us. The sole function of the law was to point out our inability to keep it. And so, the first part there is negative. It looks at these negative consequences. Makes faith of no value. 
It nullifies the promise. It ensures the wrath of God. But look at our text for today in verse 16. Because here it, he takes a turn and he turns it kind of to another side of the ledger, you might say. And he says, let's, let's look at the fortunate consequences of, of seeking to be justified by God and God alone. Not our own good works, but through faith. And that was which the path that Abraham chose. And so the first thing we see here in verse 16, it says that is why it depends on faith. Faith establishes grace. It says in order that the promise may rest on grace. Faith always establishes grace. It's because faith and grace really go together by their very nature. Just as works and the law go together, faith and grace go together. Remember a couple verses back where Paul said, those who are going to be blessed are those who don't do anything. Don't do anything. Stop working. Stop ceasing, striving for salvation. Put your faith and trust in what has already been done for you. The law tells us what we are to do. It points to deeds, it points to actions, it points to conduct and behavior. You cannot think of the law without thinking of those requirements. But in the same way, though by contrast, as soon as you think of faith, you have to think of grace. As soon as you think of grace, you have to think of faith. We've defined grace as the unmerited favor of God apart from human works. It comes by simple acceptance, which is faith. If I agree to work for $40 for a day's wages, I come to collect those wages, and you claim that you're being gracious by giving them to me, that's not true. I've I've done what you asked me to do. Your payment would be of obligation, not of grace. Now, if I didn't work at all for for you and you still gave me the wages, that would be grace. And so, faith really establishes grace. But it also, faith makes salvation certain. And this is important, that it would be a guarantee to all his offspring, it says in verse 16. Suppose salvation were based on our ability to keep the law or to somehow live up to some moral standard, if that would be the case. I mean, if you just stop and and think about that, our salvation would be called into question. Well, are we going to keep the law or not? If salvation depends upon our being honest, well, how honest do we have to be? See, it's all relative when it comes to that. So anyone who wants to be saved by works can never be certain that he or she has performed enough to reach God's standard. And it's the same way with, with, our own, with our own lives. When we come to Christ, we have to be broken. We have to be contrite. We have to be humble. We don't march into his presence saying, hey, I demand that you save me. Salvation is not by morality, but by the grace of God received through faith. Then, and only then, can salvation be certain. Salvation can be secure because why? God is faithful. Even when we're not, the Bible says, he is still faithful and he does not waver concerning his promises. He has done on our behalf what is necessarily, totally necessary through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The work of Christ is perfect. It's all sufficient. We can't add anything to it. And so the person who rests on that work, we can be 
confident. We can be secured. We can be content. Once again, Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, The law is the womb of doubt. And anyone who is attached to the law or its works is going to be besieged by all of the doubts which are born from the law. Any individual who has his eyes upon himself will be miserable. The man who walks by the law walks in the night and his footsteps echo against the wall of the darkness that goes with the law. Those echoes rise to his ears and each sound from all the troop of doubts gives him fear upon fear. If he pauses, he is in the silence of dread fears. And as he runs from them, his footsteps echo all the faster with the increasing tempo of his hysteria of doubt. But the man who walks on the promise of grace walks in the broad day. His footsteps echo against the light of God's promises, and he feels himself to be surrounded by the angels of blessing. His eager steps press forward to claim the blessings and to increase the tempo of his footsteps sets up the echoes of further blessings. If he stops, he finds himself in green pastures and beside still waters. And when he walks again, he is in the paths of righteousness. He hastens on to the golden city and the brightness of its prospects takes away any sense of fatigue that might naturally rise from the length of the road. And when the road ends, he finds that he has been supplied with grace at every step and brought on to the triumph of life eternal. See, that's the difference between works and faith. If you're trying to live a a life of works, you're going to be prone to doubt because you're always going to have that itching question, have I done enough? And then thirdly, faith opens the door of salvation to all. He says this in verses 16 to 17. The final benefit of faith as a way of salvation is that it opens the door to everybody, not just to the Jew, those who possess the law, not just to a few favored Gentiles who've been taught maybe from a high standard of education or morality, but it opens it to everyone. All may enter, whoever may come. That's what the gospel says. This is the point particularly that Paul is emphasizing here in Romans 4. Not only in these verses, but from verse 9 virtually to the end of the chapter. We have to understand that all human efforts will fall short. There are certain benefits of being, think of it this way, an American citizen. There are certain benefits that our government provides. And some of those benefits, though they're short, the list is growing shorter and shorter, are not available to those who are not citizens. You may work for a company that promises its employees certain retirement benefits, certain benefits of health care. Maybe you belong to a union that gives you certain securities as a union member. You know, you have something special in that relationship with your employer, with your union, or with your country. You have certain rights that other people don't have. You have to remember the way of salvation offered by God through the work of Christ is an open door. Regardless of who you are, or whatever you may have done, or where you have come from, doesn't matter if you're a Jew, the gospel is for you. If you're a Gentile, the gospel is for you. That's Paul's point here. It's for those who are good. It's for those who are bad. It's for those who are intellectual and scholars. It's for those who are less educated. 
It's for religious people. It's for those who have absolutely no religious background at all. None of those things enter into the picture. Because we've all been reduced to the same level. We're all in the same boat. We're all in desperate need of a Savior. And that's why the Scripture says that salvation is by the grace of God through faith. And if you're excluded from salvation, let me just say this. It's only because you have refused to walk through that open door. And we have to be very careful with our theology sometimes because as much as I understand what the Scriptures say about God choosing us and even doing that before the foundation of the world. There's many texts that point that the, the gospel is open. There's not going to be people in hell one day saying, I'm here because God didn't choose me. No, that's not going to be the case. They're going to be there because of their willful rejection of God's free offer of grace of God's free offer of salvation. And that may not make any sense in our logical minds, but that's what the Scripture teaches. If you're excluded from salvation, it's just because you refuse to walk through that open door. Or maybe you prefer to live by your own morality versus God's grace. Instead of refusing God's grace, accept it. Enter into the full joy of God's salvation because that salvation is for you. It's for me. I read a little story of, found it interesting, back in 1947, there was a a rumor, maybe those of you who were around in 47 remember this, that came out of the Ford Motor Company. And it basically said this, that the Ford Motor Company would give a Ford, a brand new Ford, in exchange for every copper penny dated 1943. And the rumor spread so fast that the Ford offices throughout the country were jammed with thousands of requests and people calling and sending letters. And even the U.S. Mint received large volumes of inquiries. Everybody trying to get a new car if they produced a copper penny that was dated 1943. Well, it was all a big hoax. You look up the statistics of the Mint, the U.S. Mint, it shows that in 1943 there were over 1 billion minted pennies from steel zinc. But due to the copper shortage because of the war, the number of copper pennies produced was exactly zero. (laughs) Why do I tell you that story? Well, there's been a rumor abroad in the human race for centuries that somehow the entrance into heaven is conditioned upon good works. That's simply not true. The fact is there are no good works on earth that are accepted by heaven, not one. All of our works are tainted by sin. The only righteousness that gains entrance into heaven is the righteousness of Jesus Christ graciously given to us, imputed to us, sinners who believe in him. That's what your destiny hinges on, beloved. Your destiny, your eternal destiny, depends on your understanding and personally believing the truth that Paul has been hammering out here in Romans chapter 4. That we are justified, that we are declared righteous by faith and faith alone. We are not justified by works or moral behavior, but by faith in the God who credits to us the ungodly apart from any works that we would do. It's not based on religious rituals. It's not based on keeping of the law. But basically, he shows us here that saving faith is rooted in God's grace. It rests on God's promise. It revels in God's glory, and it relies on God's power. Look at that first point. Saving faith is rooted in God's grace, not in human performance. He points this out over and over and over again. 
verse 16, for this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That summarizes verses 1 through 16. The reason that this promised inheritance is by faith is so that it could be in accordance with grace. That's what we have to understand. We have to believe that, that it's rooted in God's grace. It's not rooted in human behavior. And when he talks about those who are without the law, I mean, how unfair would it be if only those who had the law could get saved? That wouldn't be right. But secondly, saving faith rests on God's promise. Notice, it says, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Now, in Genesis 17, that's what that comes out of, Abraham was 99 years old. He's almost 100 years old. And God gave him this promise of a son through Sarah about 25 years prior to this. They still didn't have a son. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was 99 years old and my wife was barren, the human prospects of having any child at all are impossible. It's just not going to happen. Abraham was almost 100. Sarah was about 90. I mean, stop and think of the odds. And at this point is when the Lord appeared to Abraham and promised to establish a covenant with him. And part of the covenant said, I'm going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. And at that point, God gave Abram which was his name up to this point, which means exalted father, which almost seems laughable. He gave him a new name, Abraham, which means the father of a multitude, which even, considering the circumstances, is even more laughable. And as Abraham stood before God, beloved, even though the, the promise seemed outside of the realm of possibility from his perspective, it says that he believed God. Why did he do that? Look at verse 17. At the end, he says, Who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. He was looking at God and saying, You know what? God can do some pretty incredible things. He can raise somebody from the dead. He looked at that when he was called to sacrifice his own son. You read that story, that account in the Old Testament, you'll see where Abraham figured, hey, even if I do smite my child and he dies, God's going to raise him back up. Because he tells the servants and everything, hey, we'll be back to you. We'll we'll come back down. We're coming back down, not just me. So somehow he thought that God was going to raise his son from the dead. Which ultimately he did through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When's the last time you believed God for something that was humanly impossible? Very unlikely to happen. See, faith is not something that we just put blindly in in something. No, we, we, we want to put our faith in something that has substance. And that's why he says here, look, it's not like God doesn't have a track record. In verse 17, he says... He gives life to the dead, and he also calls into existence the things that do not exist in reference to creation. Every time you go outside and you look at a flower, you look at a a hummingbird or a little beetle or whatever, that reminds you of God's existence. That God just one day said, you know what, I'm going to create this thing. Boom, there it was. I mean, that should help our faith a little bit. To believe in God's promises is the same as believing in God's person. 
So many times we say, oh, we're Christians, we believe this, we believe that. And then when it comes right down to it, if something happens in our life, what do we do? Oh, man, we roll our eyes and, you know, go crazy with worry and don't know what's going to happen, thinking somehow, well, now God's out of the picture. No, he's not. He's right there, right beside you. Yeah, you may be going through a hard time. Maybe God's allowing that to happen for his purpose. I mean, he did leave us here for a purpose to conform us more to the image of his son each and every day so that we'd be left here as a testimony of his grace and his glory to those who are around us in this lost and dying world so they could look at our lives and not say, oh, well, they they look like everybody else. No, they could look at your life and say, wow, what has happened to this person? This person is transformed. This person is not the same person I knew before. And when people make inquiries, you don't say, yeah, I'm doing pretty good in my spirit. No, you say, hey, it's all God's glory, right? I mean, if it wasn't for the grace and and glory of God, I'd be lost in my sin. To believe in God's promises, beloved, is the same as believing in God's purpose, God's person. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of Christians, they've forgotten the God that saved them. God promises to do something, whether we believe it or not, he's still going to do it because he's true to himself. He's true to his promise. And by not believing that promise, what are we doing? We're calling God a liar. If you call me up this afternoon and say, hey, uh, Tuesday morning, can you run me to the doctors? I need a ride. And I'll say, yep, I'll be there. What time? Nine o'clock. Okay. No problem. Nine o'clock comes, I'm not there. Nine thirty comes, I'm still not there. I don't come at all. What does that make me? It makes me forgetful, but it also probably makes me a liar. <laughs> That's what the iPhone's for, right? The little reminders on there. But yeah, you know, when someone promises to do something and they don't do it, we call them a liar. When God promises to do something and we don't believe him, what are we calling him? We're calling him a liar. Paul is emphasizing God's promise. Leon Morris writes this, Abraham had nothing going for him except the promise of God. But for the man of faith, that was enough. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, Abraham believed the bare word of God and nothing else whatsoever. Faith is content with the bare word of God because he is God. It's easy to sit here and think, well, I'd like to believe God too. If he appeared to me as he did to Abraham and promised me something like that. Sometimes I wonder if we even would. I think, third thing here, saving faith revels in God's glory. It revels in God's glory. It doesn't revel in our own human effort or in our own willpower. That's what he says there in verse 20. He says, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to who? God. You know, when you question someone about their salvation and they begin to share their testimony with you, A good thing to listen for is how many eyes are in their testimony. (laughs) I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that, I did this. Wow. Is it a testimony about yourself or is it a testimony about the glory of God saving you? Abraham's faith was solely and solidly focused and centered on God. He didn't believe in himself. He didn't have faith in his faith. (laughs) He wasn't some optimist who just practiced positive thinking. I don't think he pulled Sarah aside and said, look, Sarah, you know, somehow if we can just visualize this, somehow, you know, if we can just, we can just claim this, glory to God, we'll succeed. No. 
What did he do? He, he, he really looked away from the circumstances and he even looked away from himself. And he believed God. He believed in his promises. And then he gave all glory to God. In Romans 1.21, we saw that the fundamental sin of the human race was even though they knew God, they did not what? Glorify him as God or give thanks. And here, by way of contrast, you see Abraham's faith growing strong, and the stronger it grows, the more glory he gives to God. It teaches us that our faith should grow. Weak faith or little faith is still faith. But we should grow strong in faith. That Greek verb there is in the passive. He was strengthened in faith. It implies that faith must come from God. It's a gift to us. How do we grow in our faith? I think the key to growing in our faith is your knowledge of the object of our faith. I think there's a lot of Christians who live their lives fall way short of what God has for them because of the simple fact that they're not growing in their faith because they don't know the God who saved them. Faith is only as good as the object of the faith. If you're a believer here this morning and you, you don't know the attributes of God, you've never really checked out God and, and some of his power and, and his different uh, attributes that are found in Scripture, you don't really know who's saving you. So when the doubts come, they just flood over you because you have nothing to stand on. We need to be growing in our faith. To grow in our faith, we have to have our books in, our noses in the book. We have to know what the Word of God says to us. That's why this is here, to encourage our growth, to encourage our edification, to build us up as believers. You can have strong faith in a faulty bridge. You know what? It's going to collapse despite your faith. Well, the other side of it is you can have weak faith in a strong bridge. <laughs> and it will hold you up along with semi-trucks and everything else that, that rumbles over that bridge next to you. But if your weak faith does not glorify strong bridge, then it's irrelevant. The right way to have strong faith that glorifies God is to know the God who saves us. God, not our faith, gets the glory. I've heard some believers, you know, oh boy, just a man of faith. That man, that sister, she's a sister of faith. She's a strong faith. Yeah, we should be growing in our faith, but we have to realize that our faith is not our own. It's God. God that gives us that faith. See how he's been faithful to us through the word in the past. When you stop and you think of the context of Scripture, every story is meant to edify us, to build us up. Study his attributes. Study his ways. Grow in your faith. Don't be the same person you are next year, a year from now, as you are today. Finally, saving faith relies on God's power to keep his promise in spite of human inability. It talks about gives life to the dead, calls that which into being which doesn't exist. Verse 19, he said, Abraham even thought about his own body. <laughs> said, man, this is as good as dead. How's this going to work, God? And then he thought about the deadness of Sarah's womb. See, he didn't ignore reality. That's not what faith is. Sometimes Christians are under the thing, well, you just got to close your eyes and blind faith. No, it's not blind faith. I say open your eyes, investigate it, look around. You know, Put God to the test. He'll pass. He's not afraid of you or anybody else. He doesn't have to prove himself. But you know what? The proof is all around us. 
When Paul says that Abraham did not waver in his unbelief, he's looking at the overall pattern and the final result. Not his momentary lapses in faith, because we all have those. Abraham wasn't a man of perfect faith, no. He was a man of faith. The phrase there, in hope against hope, implies that the struggle of the faith that Abraham experienced, and basically the, the, the struggle that everyone who walks by faith will experience. A lot of times, circumstances dash our hope. We think we're going down the right path. We think everything's great. Everything's going fine. Man, finances, family, everybody's doing fine. All of a sudden, we're hit with something. You can either give up at that point or you can fight back with hope. Our faith and hope are not in ourselves. They're not in our ability. They're not in our positive attitude. Our faith and our hope are in God who gives life to the dead and who calls beings that which does not exist, call into being that which does not exist. And that's exactly what Abraham believed in said, I've made you a father of many nations, Abraham. That was before Abraham had Isaac. Last time I checked, God's word says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. His word is effectual. It makes changes. Paul applies this to our salvation in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when he says, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Saving faith relies on God's power to keep his promise, not in our human ability. And that's what he says there in verse 22. It's the cumulative result, you might say, of Abraham's faith. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. There was once a dear grandmother who was going to fly somewhere for the holidays. Her family wanted her to come, and she'd never flown on an airplane before. But she had to make the trip by air. There was no way else for her to get there. And her kids and all the grandkids were all trying to convince her it was a safe. It's not a problem. It's as safe as riding in a car. Finally, after a lot of misgiving, she gets the ticket, goes to the airport, When she returned safely, the family met her at the airport. They asked her, how'd it go, Granny? Did the plane hold you up? She reluctantly agreed. Yeah. But you know, I never really did put my full weight down on that seat. (laughs) Could your faith in Jesus Christ, to save you, be like that? Do you believe in him, but you're also believing somehow by keeping one foot in good works, in your morality, coming to church, praying, whatever? All those things are good things. All those things should be part of our life. I'm not saying they shouldn't. But when it comes to our salvation, are we putting our trust in those things versus the grace of God? Saving faith puts all its weight, all its weight, on Jesus Christ and his shed blood. It's rooted in God's grace. It rests on God's promise. It revels in God's glory and it relies on his power. You leave here this morning, I want you to make sure that your trust for your eternity is in Christ and Christ alone. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it's rather simple when we look at it. There's not a smorgasbord of ways that we can get saved. You haven't left it up to us to save ourselves. You've provided a way. The way is through the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, that we put our faith and trust not in what we do, but what was done for us on our behalf on Calvary. It's relatively simple. But it's really not that simple. When we think of our own pride, our own desire to do good, to get a hug from you. We're achievers. We want, we want to excel. When the word of God says, no, I want you to stop doing everything and just trust in me. I will save you. 
You don't have to do a thing. That's a hard truth to accept, but that's exactly the truth of the gospel. And Father, we pray for those who are here this morning. Lord, maybe they have been trying to consider themselves as more worthy than others because of their own morality or because of how good of a mom or a dad they are or how good of a worker or boss they are or how many times they come to church or they pray before their meal. All those things are good things. But when it comes to our salvation, we should not be trusting in any of those. We should be trusting in Christ and Christ alone. I pray that you would communicate that truth to any hearts here who are trusting in anything else. And Lord, for us believers, I pray as we leave this building today, that we would be willing to recognize that there's a world out there that's lost and dying and on its way to hell. And you've left us here with the message of the gospel. The gospel message says that Jesus saves. And he still saves today. And he saves through grace, through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Lord, that's a positive message that many people need to hear that are caught up in their religious trappings, in their own morality, their own self-righteous morality. Lord, I pray that you'd be able to strip all those things away as we share the word of God with them. And you would bring them to their knees cause them to turn from their own morality and turn to the grace of, of Christ, the grace of God in Christ. Father, we thank you. We pray for safe travels for all those who will be traveling this next week during the Thanksgiving holiday. Lord, I pray that you would just watch over each member here and, and take them safely to where they're going and bring them back. I pray that each one would have a time of sharing with, with family and friends. And Lord, we, we don't want anybody here to go to be by themselves on, on Thanksgiving. And Lord, if, you're, if anyone here is in that situation, Lord, I pray that they'd reach out to, to someone or even to Ambika and I, and we'd be more than willing to provide a place for them. Father, we thank you. Pray your blessing on us today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.